The Soviets were very happy to see him because one of the things he was doing was he was looking for some what he called breathing space between Canada and the United States. And what better way to do it than to reach out to the Soviets and the Chinese. And as a matter of fact... Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, about to drop the puck with Chris Sands of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey, Chris. Hi, Scotty. Great to see you. Uh, it's even better to see you on at a face-off. We're at a face-off on Canusa Street. We are Street. at a face-off on We're going to have fun. We're going to talk about hockey, diplomacy, the world, and we have such a distinguished uh, couple of guests. I'm very excited. Why don't you introduce them properly, Chris? Well, first, a little bit of context, because... We are going to be talking with Ambassador Gary J. Smith, who's a former Canadian career ambassador and diplomat uh, with over 30 years of service beginning in 1968, more than 20 years of which were spent abroad during eight different assignments, including the UN in New York, the Soviet Union during the Cold War, Israel during the return of Sinai to Egypt, um, India following the Air India explosion in 1985, Germany when the Berlin Wall, Wall fell, and Indonesia involving the Briex gold scandal. So you, you pretty much, I hope... What do all these things have in common? Gary Smith, the master <laughs> I, have, no, I have trouble, yeah. Just the right guy in the wrong place. We don't want to be assigned like with you. And also, Chris, we are in studio here in Washington, D.C., and you're going to explain that, but it's lovely to be here in person. It is lovely to be here in person, but I have buried the lead because the particular reason that we have Ambassador Smith here is that he is the author of a new book on the 1972 Canada-Soviet Union Hockey Series, Ice War Diplomat, Hockey Meets Cold War Politics at the 1972 Summit Series, a book that has a U.S. edition coming out, so our listeners in the States will find it in their favorite place of buying books. A book and a movie. And a movie. You are about to say yep, that, There's I a think. documentary yes. as well. Now... <laughs> I always like to go into a meeting with someone as this distinguished with backup, and we also have a second <laughs> guest who is backup. Yeah. No one knows hockey as well as my friend Dr. Andrew Holman. You're the pips to our Gladys Knight, apparently. Yeah, right, definitely. Andrew? Yeah. <laughs> um, Andrew Holman is professor of history and director of the Canadian Studies Program at Bridgewater State University in Massachusetts. He's a member. He's been a member of the history department at BSU since 1996, and is the director of the university's uh, Canadian Studies Program. He teaches courses on Canadian and U.S. history, as well as scholarly articles, reviews, books on topics such as sport history, historiography, history of education. Now, I know in particular that he is the author of Hockey, A Global History. Not his first book on hockey, and I hope not his last, but one that gives us a global context to how important this sport is and how it's evolved in the various countries around the world. So we have a doubleheader. I guess that's baseball, but we have a really great group. <laughs> we, have, we have a good discussion, and I'm back excited. Sure. There you go. And, you know, what self-respecting Canada-U.S. podcast would go as long as we've gone, Chris, without talking about hockey and diplomacy? So, we didn't want to be too obvious. That's right. So we're going to get right into it. I know our guests are... Boy, yeah. <laughs> I don't understand it. There we go. So um, we're here in studio because the Wilson Center has put together a wonderful talk about your book, Ambassador. Maybe I'll just start with a question to both of our guests, starting with you, Ambassador, which is a broad one. What role do you think sports plays in international relations generally? Well, I think sports is good politics and it's good business. There's lots of money involved. And the beauty of sports is that it is a broader and deeper relationship in finding common ground around the world than a lot of other things, than scientific exchanges, educational exchanges, the fine arts, music, and so on. Sports really connects everybody, and it's a great vehicle. So in this particular case, Canadians love hockey, and Russians love hockey. Yeah. And therefore, it was the perfect medium, the perfect common ground to try and do something politically between Canada and the Soviet Union back in 72. Absolutely. And we're going to get into that in a second. Um, Professor Holman, I had the great pleasure a couple of weeks ago of here in Washington of being on the National Mall mm -hmm. um, to host a polo match. And 
61 countries were represented by their embassies. And polo um, has different connotations depending on where you are in the world. But uh, Argentina really considers itself to be um, to be the world capital poll. So, so I have a sense that sports and diplomacy really go well together. But you're you're a leading scholar on hockey and hockey history. Mm-hmm. Where, where do you come down on on the role of sports in global relations and global understanding, just generally? And then right. we'll get and then we'll get into the specifics of what happened, the magical moment in 1972. Yeah, I, uh, well, I, I think I just I would echo Ambassador Smith's comments about. Uh, sport being uh, at least having the potential to be a kind of international calling card for a nation. It's also fraught with difficulty if things don't go well, if um, players, fans misbehave, you run the risk of of having some kind of a negative backlash, of course. But there's something about sport that's a little bit different than, let's say, any other kind of uh, cultural pursuit as a kind of international calling card. I'm thinking about my friend and colleague John Soares, who writes about diplomatic history and sport and says, you know, you can uh, debate the merits of uh, a Copeland piece or a Shostakovich, but there's no debating who won a hockey game. <laughs> and so um, in terms of having this kind of acute uh, calling card aspect, I, I think it, uh, it certain, uh, hockey certainly has that. Other sports do, of course, as well. But, um, but hockey has the potential to be that um, imprint-leaving uh, um, vector, if you will. Absolutely. And the modern Olympic movement isn't enough, right? I think, I think what we've learned from the Olympics is about playing sports instead of fighting wars. And But once every four years, Chris Sands is not enough for hockey. We were no. there in 2010 in we Vancouver were. for the gold medal game um, in which if it was Canada versus the United States. And... Uh, final game, and if Canada didn't win, I think Vancouver would have, huh. and Canada would have had a nervous breakdown, <laughs> and Vancouver <laughs> would have right. gone up in flames or something. Like it is, you're right, uh, Professor. It is an interesting moment when fans uh, behave or don't behave or how it affects people. But the Olympics aren't enough. So, Chris, maybe over to you to get into the details M- of might this I fabulous just say, book. Com- just to yeah, come back for a course, moment on, on the Olympics because um, it's pride and prestige as well. Mm-hmm, and there's a sure. great effort to put your best forward to win medals. And sometimes it goes over the edge. If uh, you look back, for instance, in 1972, the Munich Olympics, you had uh, a great competition between the Soviet Union and the United States to see who would win the medals. And also between the two Germanys. It was oh, uh, East Germany yeah. versus West Germany. Yeah. And it was about pride. Whose system is better? And that's where we got into the whole doping side of things. The East Germans were specialists at that. They won many, many, many more medals than West Germany in the Munich Olympics. By cheating, by picking out people early on, training them, using a lot of drugs. And uh, they had a third the population of the West Germans, and yet came third in the Olympics. was really incredible. Hmm. So uh, there's that side of, of carrying flags, doing whatever you you need to do to win. And so that's where sometimes there's a downside to the the sports diplomacy part of things. Sure. Let me ask you, Ambassador, to take us back to that moment in 1972. I know some of our listeners, uh, that's ancient history for them. They won't have been around at that time. What was going on between the United States and Soviet Union? Where were we in the Cold War? And how did Canada see that tension and, and respond to it? Well, I think when Pierre Trudeau, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, came to power in 1968, he was looking to change things. He was worried about the Cold War. Mm. And so he made an overture to China, uh, to People's Republic with Mao Zedong, recognized them in uh, October 1970, concerned about the Soviet Union, and, you know, we'd come out of the Cuban Missile Crisis and invasion of Czechoslovakia. So he wanted to reduce tensions with them. And what better way than to go on a visit? So he became the first Canadian Prime Minister to go to the Soviet Union, and he went for 12 days, and the Soviets were very happy to see him because one of the things he was doing was to, he was looking for some, what he called, breathing space between Canada and the United States. Mm -hmm. And what better way to do it than to reach out to the Soviets and the Chinese. And as a matter of fact, during that visit in May 71, he signed a protocol on consultations that unnerved people here in Washington, you know, saying, yeah. what's, what's he up to? So 
while and we were had, you there? Just a quick. Were you there? Yes, posted in Moscow yes, at the time. I, I was. So you had something to do with this. Yes, and um, we also. This was a period when Nixon and Kissinger were reaching out to China, ping pong right. diplomacy, right, and trying to play what was called the China card against the uh, Soviet Union. And in sort of reverse, the Soviets said, hey, look at this Canadian coming over here. He's friendly to us. Moreover, he's got American technology in Canada. Maybe we can get to American technology through the back door. Mm. So the Soviets played a Canadian card against the U.S. playing a China card. And that's the big sort of strategic situation. And, you know, it's so interesting because you're talking about the 1970s. And Chris was saying some of our listeners may not have been born in the 70s. It's true. But fast forward to today. Andrew, the politics of the world have some of the same players. The Soviet Union, uh, China, now Russia, China, the U.S., and what, you know, what Canada can do. But anyway... Uh, may, maybe, may, maybe just to talk about the 1972 and that. Ha, so you talked, Ambassador talked about the the period in response to Chris's question. Mm-hmm. How does the hockey game fit in? What set the stage for us there? What was that all about? Sure. Well, um, well, the Soviets had were relative newcomers to the sport of hockey. Canadian hockey had been introduced as early as the 30s, but in terms of them taking it up as a serious endeavor, it wasn't until after the Second World War that they. They did, and they did in a hurry. And uh, they, the Soviets, six, they sure did. In yeah, 1954, okay. winning the the world championship, uh, which was a great surprise to to everyone, including including Canadians who thought that the sport was theirs. And so, um, this new force bursting on the scene of international hockey was something to be reckoned with. Canadians could console themselves for some time that. Well, we're we're not sending our best over there. We're sending uh, the winner of the Allen Cup the year before, or in the case of 1954, it was the East York Lindhursts who were a senior B team. Interesting. And so, <laughs> yeah. You know, such was the the but overconfidence, perhaps, that Canadians had that they could send over just any kind of team, and they'd still come away with the gold. And yeah, but in '72, it was a bunch of future Hall of Famers that went, right? It sure was. Yeah, and so what happened was. Um, Canadians, after some time, uh, began to tire of, uh, and particularly people like Alan Eagleson and others, uh, to tire of the Soviet success and of uh, Canadians not doing so well. There was a national team project led by Father David Bauer in the 1960s, and an attempt to establish a new kind of model for recruiting players. But the difficult part was always that the best amateur players were very quickly claimed or gobbled up by uh, professional teams. By the NHL. That's right. And so maintaining uh, the amateur status of the very best players was something that Canadians just couldn't seem to manage. And so finally it led to this groundswell of opinion and a push to have best-on-best series between what were by then the world's two best uh, hockey powers and uh, I know, I suspect Ambassador Smith is going to be very humble about this, but the actual bringing about of uh, this series, uh, the negotiations that had to take place so you could actually get best on best for eight games in September 1972, wasn't like snapping the fingers. And uh, I think, uh, I know I'm richer from having read uh, all the details in this book about how it came about, Hockey historians will be everybody who reads it will be, and uh, so I I would invite him to speak more about about just how difficult those kind of negotiations would have been to bring about this best on best. Mm-hmm. Well, Ambassador, well, I think that's a, that's a handoff. That's <laughs> a, a handoff, not a two line pass. Yeah, he's passing the puck, and tape I'm to supposed tape. to shoot it right. That's it, tape to tape. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, that was the problem at the time was the amateurs. They were they called themselves amateurs, but they were in the army or the air force or security services. They did way more training than uh, any Canadian or American basketball player at the time as well. In '72, uh, the U.S. went to Munich Olympics with college people who had never played together before against this great Soviet team, and so we were we were really handcuffed by the uh, International Olympic Committee and the International Ice Hockey Federation. No, 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 no to professionals. So how did we get around that? Given the desire in Canada that, you know, we've got to get our 
prestige back here. We've got to pull ourselves up off the floor. And the result was that we worked out the idea, okay, we're going to have just a bilateral series of games. No international games, nobody else, just between Canada and the Soviet Union, and it's going to be an exhibition series. There'll ah, be, there'll there be no go. trophy, mm-hmm. right? Okay, we're yeah. not playing for a trophy. We're just playing best on best. And they called it, the Russians called it the Druzhba series, the friendship series. So that's how we were able to get around all the obstacles of the International Ice Hockey Federation and the Olympic Committee. Said best versus best in an exhibition series, four games in Canada and four in the Soviet Union. And that's what made it unique in a sense, because the Olympics are always in one locale, right? Right. They're in Canberra and then Vancouver or Atlanta. Uh, but this was a traveling series. Yeah. And we had uh, four games in Canada, September 2nd, 4th, 6th, and 8th in Montreal, Toronto, Winnipeg, and Vancouver. And then we went back uh, two weeks later to play four games in Moscow. Originally, they were going to move it around there, too, but they yeah. had security problems and sure. transit problems. So kind of like the Stanley Cup or, well, you know, in, in, a, in different in, cities in a or, sense, or the World Series, where but, you go back and forth. Well, yeah, except that we're traveling across the world, and right. we're, we're taking with us 3,000 Canadian fans. Oh, really? You know, boisterous fans who were looking for a big, great Cupski party, which is let's get down and dirty and drink a lot and have a great time. You know, I hope that some of the fans that went to that game will somehow find their way to this podcast and and, and ping us, because that, that would be really fun to, as a follow-up. Anyway, keep going. Well, sure. I've been in touch with some of them in, in recent days, and they're still keen. They're still having reunions. Sure. Uh, well, Because it was a fabulous event. It was, yeah. I think a, for about $650, you got airfare from, say, uh, Toronto to Moscow. You got uh, 10 days accommodation, all meals four tickets to the four games, sightseeing uh, around the city, went to the Bolshoi and the circus and so on. And people just flocked. I think we could have sold, instead of 3,000, we could have sold six, seven, eight, nine thousand tickets. Amazing. But the, the arena was only 13,000. And the Russians, you know, they, they wanted to load it up with all their Communist Party friends. Right. And so the average Russian uh, fan never even got close to the arena. Well, and Chris, I promised to hand, to hand this over to you, but no, just one more great. one more thing about that. As I listened to an interview um, with Paul Henderson, who is yes. the iconic uh, Canadian hockey player who who ends up winning. Not, I think there's no spoiler here. This is this is something everybody knows. But he he scores uh, several goals, including the winning goal. But in listening to him, you know. The Canadian team, I think, was a little self-confident. It was it was Canadian players who hadn't played together as a team, and they came together for this purpose, whereas the Soviets had been training together. And they really, the Canadians came in thinking that they were going to just basically sweep. And Hubris. man, it didn't go down like that at all, did it? It didn't, no. No, they were, it was going to be an eight-game sweep uh, on our side. The Globe and Mail correspondent, uh, Dick Beto, said, if the Soviets win one game, I'll eat my column in a bowl of borscht on the steps <laughs> of the Russian embassy. Did he do it? And he did, did you make he him did, do it? He did right oh, after gross. the very first game. <laughs> That's disgusting. <laughs> the very first game. So he, he, uh, he had to do that. And it's true uh, what Paul Henderson said. We picked our best players from the Canadian and American uh, teams. There were, I think, 14 at the time, 11 in the U.S. and three in Canada. But they all hated each other. Yeah. You know, they were fighting uh, as hockey was the big thing in those days, lots of fights. And they were duking it out with each other. And then all of a sudden they were thrown together. Right. And said, you got to be friends. you got to work together. And it's in the summer when they're all drinking beer. We had no training programs. <laughs> The, so- the Soviets had this great, under uh, Anatoly Tarasov, had a great training system. They had diet as well. There were certain foods that you had to eat. You see, kids, your nutrition makes a difference That's in it. your physical That's well-being. It. I but hope my son has tuned can- into this. The Canadian <laughs> players, as soon as they finished playing in May, just went on the road, started drinking, got out of shape. And, uh, you know, uh, as I said, drank a lot of beer, ate a lot of French fries and hamburgers, and were in terrible shape. And normally you get ready in training season in September to get the weight down and get your skills back. Play your way into shape. Play your way into shape. But they weren't. They they weren't in shape. And so 
all this, they had also sent over a coach to the Soviet uh, Union that I went with to a game. Um, they saw only one game, and he said the Russian goaltender was a sieve. He let in eight goals. I said, but it's his wedding tomorrow. <laughs> you know, he's got his mind on other things. Doesn't matter. We're going to clean up on all these guys. So hmm. that scouting report came back. This great self-confidence. All the media, as I mentioned. That Canadian uh, arrogance, Chris. We were, <laughs> yeah, we really carry it around. You know? And uh, yeah, we were going to clean up. Hockey, I think that's a fair. We felt we were the world's best and yeah, we were going to do it. And so on September 2nd, 1972 in Montreal, we scored two goals in the first six minutes. And everyone thought this is going to be a romp. And they came back in one seven three. Yeah. Everybody in Canada was flummoxed, despair. Um, this was going to be our moment, and it wasn't. We were going to win big, and instead we lost big. So it was a national trauma. And for the twenty seven days in September, everybody in Canada watched this series. Yeah. And indeed, and Canada came to a halt on the final game on September twenty eight. You know, school kids were herded into gyms no with small TV sets, and they watched it. Business stopped. People lined up at stores outside to have it, access to a TV. Well, hang on a second. Andrew Holman, you were a kid in St. Catharines, Ontario. Lockview Public School. I remember Tell that. We were it. all gathered into... I, I, I can't recall... Uh, re I don't remember, you know, knowing its importance at the time, but um, these images that we have... Uh, you know where were you when it was one of those where where were you when uh, moments and uh, and I'm I'm thankful to those teachers who herded us into the auditorium to watch this little black and white screen with the wavy lines and everything. But um, were you yeah. playing hockey back then? I think or I not was, yet. Yes, I I yeah. started Kiwi at five and I think I was yeah. seven or something. Yeah, yeah. Like it was a bad transmission from Moscow. Uh, it was awful. The it's, sound was terrible, and you thought, the, uh, "Gee, the screen's going to disappear. I'm not going to yeah. see this game." But everyone in the country watched it. And you know what? A hundred we estimated in the embassy a hundred and fifty million Soviets watched this series too. Wow. They they were transfixed by it because they had a steady diet of propaganda on Soviet television sure. and so they loved it when sports came up and you know, hockey number one or number two sport in the Soviet Union. So we really reached a lot of homes and a lot of people and that was part of our purpose. Sure. Was to use this to show that we weren't the bad capitalists that the leaders were saying, and we're communists just like you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, maybe you could say that about a few. But the the thing is that the Soviet goalie who uh, was getting married the, the next day and for practice, twenty years old, Vladislav Tretyak, he came over and he put a human face on communism. Yeah, they, sure. Johnny Esau, the interviewer, said, you know. He said, uh, Vladislav, Canadians think you're wonderful. And all of a sudden, you know, this feeling that the communists are nasty and dirty and so unlike us, here was this bright young guy playing our game yes. extremely well. And that's where the stereotypes broke down. I want to. I want and, to put this and to you. Uh, just to finish, if I could, Chris. Uh, and wonderful, he, he he was and and is. I had the chance to meet him six years ago, uh, in Moscow, and uh, and uh, warm, uh, full of humor, um, very tactile. Lots of hugging, that sort of thing. Maybe that had something That's to do vodka. with the, the vodka, right? <laughs> Talking, yeah. But um, <laughs> I I don't think the the, the Soviet Spirits. Union then and Russia now could have a better ambassador for their game than. Uh, than Trichak. Is he still mad about that goal? No, I don't think so, but I, I, I really didn't have the temerity to bring it up. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, uh, in this film that we're going to see part of called Icebreaker, uh, I went to Moscow last year with the film director, and we got Trichak to go to the very arena, and he reenacted that oh, final wow. goal. Wow. He walked his way, the, there was no ice at the time, but he walked his way down to where he stood in the Soviet net, and he played the last minute. Oh, my gosh. like this, and the puck's over here, and there's a bad play by my defenseman, Vasiliev, over here. Cornway gets it. He gets it to Esposito, and it's in front. Of, and I make a save, and then Henderson gets the puck again, and he scores with 34 seconds to go. 
for Canada yeah. to win because on a rebound, he, on a rebound that of Henderson's own shot, and you mentioned that Henderson scored the uh, the winning goal. He also scored the winning goal in Game Seven yeah. and Game Six, yeah. which were all one goal victories. And we needed to win each and every one of those games because we were down. And his teammates all wanted the puck. You know, these guys are all phenomenal hockey players. And to hear him tell it, you know, they all say, give me the puck. You know, we're down. And he, he got it. Well, he so. called off uh, Peter Mahovlich. That's right, Peter Mahovlich. Peter, get off, get off. I just feel I'm going to do something. And he's, it. yeah, but the way he tells it, Mahovlich thought it was like the coach yelling at him. He doesn't think, because <laughs> they were coming from the same direction. Anyway, Chris, you're never going to get a word in ed- edgewise here, no, my friend. No, but I'm having a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> but I will ask... A question for you, Andrew. There's something about the way in which hockey has a sort of cultural resonance. This is not, with all due respect to polo or tennis or other sports, this is this is a popular sport for the lunch bucket crowd, for the blue-collar worker, for the kids playing in neighborhoods. How did that shape the way that this was viewed by ordinary Canadians, uh, maybe by ordinary Soviets and Americans who are watching this, just the fact that it was a sport that really resonated with them and was relatable? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, the the myth, part of the myth of Canadian hockey and, and Canadians' claim to hockey being their game is this this whole idea that it's attached to winter, that it's a way that Canadians have defeated winter or owned it or mm-hmm. appropriated it in some way. And that that has existed, I think, in the discourse since the late 19th century right to the present day. And so maybe like uh, the British with the first industrial revolution, um, we got stuck and and innovation was something that, that didn't come along, that Canadians maybe didn't uh, adjust their game as quickly as they might have done through the middle decades of the 20th mm-hmm. century. And why why would they if they were still at the top of the, in their own view, the top of the world? Um, but what the, the Summit Series does is to, in a broad sense, convince Canadians that there's some merit in sharing their game with the world uh, and that um, there's also something to be learned in terms of strategy and tactics. And so uh, in the book that I've co-authored with Steve Hardy on on uh, global hockey history, uh, we mark this transition, this period of convergence that comes. This is certainly something that Ambassador Smith talks about in his own book how the Summit Series changes hockey forever, that we see this kind of convergence that takes place. European hockey, which had been played in certain ways, becomes in some measure a little bit more physical. Mm -hmm. We begin to see uh, some of the North American quote-unquote tactics being employed there. But even more markedly is the importation of European-Soviet tactics and the importation of European-Soviet players as well. They carry this cultural transfer with them uh, over to North America. And the result, 50 years later, is a much better game Mm -hmm. uh, than it was before. It's faster. It's it's more aggressive. Um, We went through a kind of a period from about 1972 until 1987 or thereabouts Mm -hmm. where physicality became and intimidation became the way to win games. The Broad Street Bullies of Philadelphia in the 1974-75 and the Big Bad Bruins in the late 1970s, that's run its course. Mm -hmm. And now the game is much, much more about stick and puck and speed and, uh, and less so about physicality except when we get to the playoffs, then we'll see a, <laughs> yeah, a different thing come down about. to the playoffs, yeah. Let me ask you both a question then, because I'm, I'm trying to situate this. I, re- I remember the Cold War, there were there were the ten- the chess tournaments. Yes. Uh, that was a, a source of pride. Uh, we, we went through, obviously, Olympic hockey. How did this particular series, though, relate to all of that? Why was this so memorable and, and in some ways so pivotal, both for global diplomacy and the sport itself? Well, I think it was pivotal because it meant so much to Canada. It's in, you know, hockey's in our DNA. Mm. And as uh, Professor saying, we we were losing. You know, our our pride was hurt. We knew we were better, but we couldn't put our best players forward. And therefore, there was year after year after year of losing to the Soviets. And so there's this great dimension. And when it happened, that's why there was such a massive following. And same on the Soviet side, they knew they were winning world championships, but they hadn't played the best. 
Yeah. And they knew that the best was on this side. So on the hockey front, there was a sort of collision of interests. And that's why it, it got so much attention. So, so can I just jump in? This was a gutsy move on your part. I'm just picturing it. Here you are, a young Canadian diplomat in Moscow. You've just described that Canada knows it's better, um, but isn't able to play best on best. So you come up with this idea. And... It had to be, and then Canada is not is only not sweeping, but could lose. I mean, what would have happened? What was going through your mind at the time? Because, uh, you know, again, Paul Henderson was sure they would win, but it was damn close. But he was on the ice. What was going through your mind? Like, were you thinking, holy moly, what have I done? What if we lose? The imba- I'm going to get... No. Recalled to Canada and sent, <laughs> no, or, or worse, left here? <laughs> I'll tell you, uh, one thing I mentioned in the book was that one day I received a phone call at the embassy, and it was from the top diplomat, say, in the State Department, uh, calling to speak with me. And I said, why would he want to speak to me? I'm the lowest guy on, on the, uh, uh, you know, in the hierarchy here. And said, no, he needs to speak to you, and he wants to speak to you directly. And he said, Gary what the hell's going on over there in those negotiations? And I want to remind you of one thing. Your job is to keep this series on the rails. And so it wasn't my job to have us win or lose. Well, I mean, I wasn't well, on but the yeah, ice, but, but yeah, it was. I, it was to keep the series going to the end because there were four or five instances where yeah. this thing may have collapsed. Really? Including in the very end when there was a massive uh, argument about referees. Sure. And the Canadian manager, Alan Eagleson, was threatening to go home. And this is it. If we don't get the referees we want, we're going home. Mm-hmm. And so there was my job. So, oh, my God. Uh, we got all these fans here. Uh, we go home. We're sore losers. I don't get my job done of mm-hmm. keeping it on the rails. So that's where my push was. And I, I got to make a proposal uh, on the referees. I said, how about you choose one and and uh, we'll choose one. Classic, classic move. It was, except there were the KGB agents in the room. And we said, we're going to take the Swedish referee. And they smiled and said, uh, well, he's sick. Said, well, we just oh, no. we just saw him for breakfast. Yeah, he seems fine. He, oh, he was fine. God. He said, "Well, he's sick now," and wow. we knew it was a political <laughs> illness. And we got we were euchred on on that particular instance. So we picked the check, and they took a West German who was atrocious, and there were a lot of shenanigans in the in the final game. So my eyes were to keep this thing going from a diplomatic point of view because. It was between Canada, the Soviet Union, the leadership at the top, Brezhnev, Kosygin, and Trudeau, and that was their goal, to find the common ground in hockey. And if we had quit, even if we lost, it would have been all right, because in the end, the Soviets lost. But they said the real winner of this series was the game of hockey itself. Okay, but uh, Andrew, you're a historian, and, and Ambassador, respectfully, didn't really answer my question about culturally, about what, if, what if Canada had lost... Yeah. Like good, jo- yeah. good job, ambassador, keeping it on the rails, and you know. So getting the question the rest. is, does this the convergence in terms of the hockey world the coming together? Yeah. Happen if if seventy two doesn't happen at and all? And also, Canadians' sense of themselves and the role they play in the world, kind of in using hockey as a as a diplomatic tool. Yeah, I, I think it would have happened sooner or later in some form, whether it came in the form of visiting clubs or whether. It came in in some other uh, national team tournament format. It would have happened, maybe not for a decade, maybe maybe for longer than that. But um, uh, you know, we've had this kind of two forces and desire on the both sides uh, to have some kind of best on best tournament. Okay, that it happened in September 1972 is. A miracle. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Different miracle but, on ice. So, yeah, Chris. I was going to ask about the miracle on ice. I mean, that, that was the, the famous U.S. Soviet game. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, to what extent, if you compare the two, could there have been that miracle on ice with the same sense of expectation if there hadn't been the 72 Summit Series? How do you think the two interplay? Obviously, we cheered in the U.S. Yeah. when uh, when it was the miracle. Well, and why don't, you, why don't you think about that? question and we're going to buy you some time by taking a little break and when we come back uh you can compare and contrast and we'll bring it to present day also look forward to it are you red white and blue or just red and white beaver or bald eagle ryan reynolds or j-lo 
Canusa Street, a masterclass in cross-border relations. This is where Canada and the United States intersect on the policies and issues of our two great nations. But you know that already. That's why you're here. The question is, if you want more of this bilateral bonanza delivered directly to your inbox, and you know you do, how about signing up for Scotty Greenwood's weekly email updates on Canada-US relations? Head to cabc.co to sign up today. And now back to Canusa Street. It's 50 years and I still get goosebumps. You need to understand what 72 was. You need to know the history, the month, the lead up, the drama, the politics, everything that was in green. It was the Cold War at that time. But for a four-week period, everyone put down their weapons and said, hey, we're going to have this battle on the ice. But we're going to shake hands when it's over. That was a great example for people in Canada and people in the Soviet Union. The 72 series was an icebreaker for a lot of reasons. It was the greatest hockey that was ever played. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everyone. We're talking about the 1972 Summit Series between Canada and then the Soviet Union. And our guests are Ambassador Gary J. Smith, author of a new book, Ice War Diplomat, Hockey Meets Cold War Politics in the 1972 Summit Series. And Andrew Holman, who is a professor at Bridgewater State University and the author of the book, Hockey, A Global History. So talk to us a little bit, if you could. Uh, we, we left you, we left our audience with a, with a little bit Big cliffhanger. Of, a big cliffhanger. Oh, right. <laughs> yes. Talk a little bit about what Americans tend to remember, which is the miracle on ice, Lake right. Placid, Olympic victory over the Soviets. To what extent was the hype or the idea of that really set in the in, in the mold in people's minds, their expectations because of the 72 Summit Series? And I think it's, uh, I mean, there's certainly some similarities there, but it's difficult to draw a direct line mm. that, um, you know, the New York Times covered it, uh, other American outlets covered it, but it just didn't have the same kind of gravity in the United States the, as it did in Canada. And so... Part of that helps to explain why 1980 is so big. Mm -hmm. Now, I talk to my students. I, I teach a, a freshman writing skills seminar on hockey, and I talk to them. I'm sure that's a popular class. <laughs> they, know, they know all about 1980, but they know nothing about 1972, and, and so I'm only too happy to, to tell them. Um, the changes that take place after 1972 are gradual, right? It's mm -hmm. not as if 1972 opens the floodgates for Soviet players to come over and play in North America. No. No, that takes until the next decade before we see that take place. And the the question about amateurs versus professionals, who constitutes an amateur and, and who is a profession, that's not resolved immediately by 1972 either. It's this best-on-best best opportunity that we have that allows for that one shining moment. And so the Olympics continue, and in 1980, when we have the Miracle Ice uh, on Ice take place in Lake Placid, it's still this kind of mythical amateur-on-amateur amateur, um, competition. And so it's within that realm or under that light that the, the great um, Herb Brooks, you know, recruits his college kids who you know, were paid a stipend to play uh, for the U.S. team and trained and and combined uh, Russian tactics with North American tactics and come up with this massively improbable uh, win. Uh, I think, you know, the Miracle on Ice puts hockey on the map in the United States in a way it hadn't been before. The United States, of course, they won the 1960 uh, Olympic title, and they had a number of world championship teams that were really very good, great talent in Michigan and in Massachusetts and Minnesota. But uh, the idea of a hockey team representing a nation really isn't crystallized until until 1980. If one of the the big measures that I would look at um, as to hockey coming of age in the United States. Um, 1980 is a symbol of that, right? If you look at the rosters for the best collegiate teams in the United States right up through to the mid-1970s, there are heavy numbers of Canadians who have been recruited to come and play on those teams. And what the Miracle on Ice says to people is, um, 
we don't need to recruit Canadians anymore. Uh, we've come of age in terms of the way in which we produce the talent, and it's continued on since then. Uh, the United States produces something like 26 or 27 percent of uh, players in the National Hockey League, the very best league in the world. Um, Canadians are now 44, something like that, mm. which is maybe 50% less than what they were back in 1972. They were 98% in 1972, so that's oh, wow. a dramatic change. 98% of the players in the NHL in, in 1970 were Canadian. Were Canadian. And what percentage is it today, roughly? 44. 43, 44. Yeah. And the, the big change is the lot. increase in so Americans. Yeah, but the, it's the increase in Americans and foreigners. So the Swedes, yeah. the Finns, the Slovaks, the Germans, the Russians. Mm -hmm. That's where the internationalization of the game in North America has happened. And you go, you know, down the street here and there's Alexander Ovechkin playing. Yeah, in and it's a little controversial yeah. given what's happening in the world now, hey? Yeah, Chris? indeed. But I wanted to ask you, Ambassador, about, about something that just occurs to me. I mean, you, you look at the U.S. and China, and Canada moves ahead of the Nixon administration to open up relations with China. You look at Miracle on Ice, Canada moves ahead with the 1972 series. What is it about Canadian diplomacy? And I'm not just trying to flatter you, but, but that gives you that instinct that has, in, in some ways, you know, gazumped the U.S. and and made openings diplomatically with a little, seems to me, a little bit of creativity, a little bit of daring, but also some risk-taking. Yeah, well, I think you can add to that list uh, Trudeau visit to the Soviet Union. Sure. He, it was in May 71. Nixon came in May 72. It was a massively important visit with the ABM Treaty and START Agreement and so on. But the fact that I think Canadians moved more quickly is due to the fact we have less constraints. Mm. Uh, you get the prime minister deciding something in a parliamentary system and things can happen. Whereas in the United States with checks and balances and all the, uh, the issues with the military uh, having a point of view on things. So there's a lot more to consider here in the United States than there is in Canada. And therefore, uh, particularly with uh, Trudeau, you know, said, all right, I want to make that overture to the Chinese and to the Soviets and let's play the hockey uh, before the Americans do. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I wish we could talk all day because this is a lot of fun yeah. and um, slightly less nerdy, Chris, than we normally do, I have to say, a little more... It's a different flavor of nerd, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're, we're coming up to the end of our time and I guess... Um, I'll take the privilege of asking all three of you, um, and I'm including you, Chris, because we've been um, haven't given you as much airtime as we normally should. <laughs> it hardly um, matters. To, to give us a few just concluding thoughts, very briefly on um, on the summit, or on hockey today, or on the global t situation today, whatever, whatever you want, and we'll we'll come around the table. And we'll start with you, Professor Holman. Sure. Well, uh, to keep it on the the 1972 summit series, I, uh, I can't really emphasize strongly enough just how important this was as a a trigger, a kind of pivot for opening up the sport and uh, bringing about big, big change. I mentioned this a little bit earlier on, but, you know, it does underline that whole notion of, uh, of sport uh, being uh, a great vector for, for soft power and, and public diplomacy. And it's not just at the most elite levels. Mm -hmm. I've told the story to Chris before, so he'll forgive me, but uh, when I went to Moscow in, 19, in 2016 to give a paper at a, the World Hockey Forum, um, a friend of mine uh, said, well, are you going to bring your hockey gear with you? I thought, God, I never thought of that. So yeah. the next day I contacted Aaron Annabel, who was working here in Washington yeah. at the embassy then. Now he's in Chicago as That's the right. consul he's our general. Cons Canada's consul general Canada's there. Yeah. General, yeah. And uh, he said, well, uh, I know somebody in the, the Moscow embassy. To give you gear. Uh, he he called, well, he sent a, an email. It was within hours I heard back from some guy called Evgeny, who said, <laughs> I heard you're looking for a game. Evgeny and his buddies got together every Sunday night at the Seska rink, which is the Red uh -huh. Army rink. Yeah. And sure enough, I brought my gear. So did Julie Stevens, a professor from Brock in St. Catharines. And the two of us went and got to play hockey, took pictures with everybody. And so th this whole blast. notion that, yeah. that, you know, it, that the hockey diplomacy just operates on a, the highest level, I think, is, is not true. That it, it's true for youth teams. It's true for beer league guys like me. It's universal. It really is. Chris Hands. 
Well, it just reminds me, uh, my colleague here at the Wilson Center and the director of the Kissinger Institute on China in the U.S. Uh, has been working with us on a, a program looking at China and Canada after the two Michaels and, and Meng Wanzhou. But one of the reasons that he wanted to partner with me, not just because he's from upstate New York and has a place on the St. Lawrence, so looks at Canada all the time, but also because when he was in Beijing in the 1990s, he played a pickup hockey game. He was the goalie on the Canadian embassy team playing, again, the, the Russians. Uh, Pretty good for an American Chinese. kid. That's Pretty good. Robert Daly, right? Yeah, Robert Daly, who played goalie and, and was a great contributor in the team. And that those relationships that, that he forged just playing hockey with fellow Canadians, uh, Graham Shantz, a diplomat for Graham, Canada, Graham, yeah. now runs the Canada-China Business Council. And the two of them get along great because... They're on the ice together, and they were having these experiences. So there's something to be said for this, and um, I think it's a great contribution that Canada's made, and a great reminder that uh, when we ice over Canusa Street, we we ought to have some pickup games uh, in the middle <laughs> of town. But uh, Ambassador, last word to you. Well, the uh, we did have an American goalie in '72 for the Moscow Maple Leafs, the beer league team I played on, and uh, he was an American Marine, so I recall that. Oh, hoorah! <laughs> yeah, hoorah! The thing that uh, I want to there are two things I'd like to mention, if I might. Ukraine. Um, yes. You know, there's a very, very nasty invasion underway here, and we don't know where it's going to go. But Ukraine's going to win. Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't want to go out on uh, on that fence just because uh, it's un war is unpredictable. Yeah, you don't know which way it's going to head. But the the important thing is to keep relations going with the Soviet Union. Keep our embassies in Moscow, eyes and ears and a voice. And hockey from '72 onwards has been a bridge between Canada and the Soviet Union. And as a matter of fact, uh, just a month ago, the Russian Minister of Sports uh, issued a statement for the Summit Series, and he talked about the hockey bridge. So there are those transmission belts, lines of communications that we need to make sure go on, you know, between the NHL players and back home to see if we can find some way that uh, we can deal with the situation so it doesn't get out of control. Uh, the second thing is, We've got a scandal in Canada now on hockey. Yeah. You know, a sex scandal. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, a sex scandal. And it comes back to the whole thing that this isn't about old white guys anymore, uh, talking about 72. It's about inclusivity, and it's about fairness, and it's about providing a safe environment in which everybody can go out and enjoy our national sport. And I'm very happy to see that we're now finally wrestling with this issue with women's hockey, kids hockey, people who've come from around the world to come to Canada and learn the game, but we're always sort of looked down upon or there were nasty comments made. So we're finally addressing a problem that's been with us for a long, long time, and it's time. Well, thank you for that. What a what a interesting discussion. I We're about to go uh, listen to you guys and a couple more on a, on a panel for the Wilson Center. By the time this podcast is aired, probably the Woodrow Wilson Center site will have links to your chat. And of course, um, everybody should buy Ice War Diplomat. It is the latest book that we've been talking about, about the 72 Summit. And uh, Andrew Holman, Gary Smith, it's really good to see you guys. Same here, Scotty. Yes. We're going to have to change this podcast, Chris, to only talk about sports. That was so much fun. Sports and diplomacy. I think it's a good, maybe, or maybe we'll launch a new podcast. I don't know, but I just found this a great discussion. And Canusa Street manages to bring together all kinds of people. And you managed to bring together some wonderful scholars, authors, diplomats. So thank you. This was such a blast. Well, you're welcome, although I don't think it's, it's really the credit to them for putting this together. And I think we easily forget that Canada-U.S. relations is strong because it's a friendship between the peoples and those moments that we shared. Talk about the 72 series. There were Americans watching and cheering on the Canadians because, of course, they were on our side of the Cold War. There are, there are endless stories of sports and events that have brought Canadians and Americans together. And what this book shows, what Ambassador Smith's example shows and, and Professor Holman validated is that it still works, that it can go across not just two countries very similar to each other, but it can include people on opposite ends of a very nasty conflict. And there's, there's great hope in that. Yeah. And, you know, credit to the Wilson Center, I have to say, for hosting the book talk, because it's awkward for the Canadian embassy um, at this moment, whereas 
everyone knows we're we're at war with Russia. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, it's not to end on such a heavy note, but it, it is important. And the Olympic movement tells us this, that that sports continues a different kind of engagement, even when we're fighting on the battlefield. And I think I think Ambassador made a very important point there at the end um, about that. And so it's good when when uh we can get together outside of official channels um, to keep dialogue going, even when the official channels are literally um, dealing with war. The other thing, and, and maybe we'll talk about it in a future episode, because I don't want to understate it, is what's happening with Hockey Canada and the scandals. And what we do know is every everyone goes through scandals, um, and it's and and everyone has to reconcile with their past. And so the important thing is to recognize recognize it and take the right steps. And, and again, that's a topic we can explore. I didn't mean to short shift, shrift it at the end there, but I'm, I'm glad he raised it because you can't talk about hockey today uh, in Canada without at least acknowledging what's going on. Well, and the other thing you brought up, of course, was the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And many of our Canadian listeners will know perhaps the, the most famous uh, contemporary or recent hockey player in Canada, the great one, Wayne Gretzky, is Ukrainian. And, you know, he's spoken out about the war and, and been very much trying to raise awareness. So sports figures have a way of reaching us when uh, talking heads, uh, certainly boring think tank guys, don't. They have a cultural resonance that puts politics to one side and touches on something very honest and human in all of us. And so the role of sports and diplomacy, the role of culture, in diplomacy, and I know you've done a lot of this with, with art and so on, yeah. it really is an important part. And as much as we focus on what fits in the newspaper's world section, and that's all that right. matters, actually, right. there's there's quite a lot um, between two countries, between two different peoples that sports can bring out, and even if it's competitive, can still bring us to a, a resolution where we accept the score and and we cheer for the best guy on the other team just because we appreciate the sportsmanship. That's exactly right. And I'll just I'll just leave with a shameless plug, Chris, which is there's something called the Congressional Hockey Challenge. Oh yes. It's a nonprofit game. It's legislators versus lobbyists and it's played uh, to benefit charities here and the NHL is a partner, but it's it's literally members of Congress playing against advocates and we at the Canadian American Business Council have supported this match uh, because it's played for charity because it brings Democrats and Republicans together. But also, the legislators found over the years that they were losing too many games to the lobbyists, so they decided to make it a Canada-U.S. game. So they bring in members of parliament to increase their odds. Uh -huh. So it's a Canada-U.S. It's not just Congress versus uh, <laughs> legislature. Anyway, um, so so Congressional Hockey Challenge is a wonderful uh, cause, and people should go check it out. We'll be supporting it uh, when it comes around. So so Google that. Google Ice War. Uh, what is it? Ice War Diplomat. Ice War Diplomat. And um, we'll see you next time on Canada. Street. We'll see you next time. And, and honestly, that was a great way to end, Scotty, because if we, we started this podcast talking about how hockey brought Canadians and the Soviet Union together at the height of the Cold War, if Canadians and Americans can play a, a charity hockey game in Washington, overcoming all of the polarization in Washington, it is powerful, this thing called sport. That's right. And we beat the buzzer. See you next time. See you next time. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.